0: The kinds of things that cognitive psychologists like Daniel Kahneman study yield metacognitive knowledge. They tell us something about the way we think and some of the pitfalls.
1: You're listening to Vitamin PhD, a podcast from Boston University delivering career narratives and know-hows to supplement your doctoral studies. Welcome to Season 8 of the Vitamin PhD podcast where we focus on management and leadership from both academic and professional perspectives with guests from a diversity of fields, from project management to group and power dynamics. We are your hosts. I'm Emma, and I'm a PhD student in biomedical engineering at BU. My research focuses on non-invasively controlling neuronal activity with ultrasound.
2: And I'm Allie, a doctoral candidate in American studies. My dissertation explores an environmental history of air in the United States, and I also have a background in education. This season, we wanted to take you through different scales of management and leadership, from individuals to groups to institutions. Reflection is one way to assess how we lead and manage, so we wanted to begin with how we learn. In this episode, we speak about metacognition with author and researcher Shari Tishman, a principal investigator at Harvard's Project Zero Research Center. We are honored today to be joined by Shari Tishman, who is a senior research associate at Project Zero, Harvard Graduate School of Education. Her research focuses on the teaching of thinking, the role of close observation and learning, and learning in and through the arts. The author of numerous books and articles, Shari Tishman's most recent book is Slow Looking, The Art and Practice of Learning Through Observation. Shari holds her doctorate in education from Harvard University. Welcome, Shari. Thanks for being with us today.
0: Well, first of all, thank you for having me. This is exciting. You know, I love the idea of thinking about leadership and management through the lens of metacognition. I think it's really important and exciting, and I'm delighted to be here. I guess I'm very curious just to start out by asking both of you, why did you want to include metacognition as a topic in this season?
2: You know, in my own life and work, I find myself constantly thinking about engagement, both as a teacher as well as a doctoral student and researcher. I notice that I learn much better when I'm actively asking questions and reflecting on what I'm experiencing, bringing that meta attention of the how of whatever it is I'm doing or thinking, as well as the what, which is often where we focus more. I also noticed that this makes learning more enjoyable for me and When we're engaged and enjoying what we're doing, I find that I produce better work. I believe this to be the case for all of us, but I know for myself that it's more enjoyable to do, and I think I'm more enjoyable to work with as a colleague. So the more I understand about what I enjoy, how I work best, and why I'm motivated by the things that motivate me, I find the more engaged, curious, and authentically I can do the work, whether that's teaching, researching, writing, or working with others.
0: I love that, and I love the link between metacognition and pleasure.
1: I similarly get wrapped up in these extrinsic measures of success as a graduate student. And I think they're very important, obviously, but another very important aspect of graduate school is growing as a leader. And uh, I, I see that leadership and management skill building really starts from within. And metacognition is a better way to understand myself and learn how to lead to my best ability.
2: Let's turn it back to you, Shari. Would you tell us a little bit about yourself and your interest in metacognition and how you found your way into this work?
1: I studied
0: philosophy as an undergraduate, and um, so I I sort of started there. and, And in studying philosophy, I Found out that there was this fancy name for something that I would kind of always been interested in, which the word was epistemology, which is sort of the theory of knowledge. And I just, I was just interested in what knowledge was and how we think about how to define it and how we think about who has it. And you know, philosophers have been interested in that for millennia. You know, I left my undergraduate work having with that with that strong interest, but I didn't really have an interest at that moment in going on immediately to get a doctorate in philosophy because in, um, you know, the only path of that, the only thing that led to is becoming a philosophy professor, which I didn't think I wanted to do at the time. And I did some other things, but I got involved in some teaching situations and it just really developed in me an interest in um, what I came to think of as philosophy of education. You know, how do we think philosophically about what it means to learn, what it looks like to learn and what counts as knowledge and so forth. And one thing led to another. And I ended up um, going to Harvard Graduate School of Education to, to, in a program in philosophy of education, which no longer exists. And I had a wonderful advisor named Israel Scheffler, who has passed, but is very influential philosopher of education. But I sort of had a lucky break early on in my doctoral career. I got a work study job at a research organization called Project Zero, which is a Allie, of course, knows it. It's a center at the Graduate School of Education that kind of looks at complex cognition and sort of lives at the intersect between theory and practice and tries to think hard about um, what counts as powerful learning, but also is interested in the design of learning experiences. I got a work-study job there probably 35 years ago. I, I never left <laughs> and I sort of want, it's a, it's a, a sponsored, all of our work is sponsored research. I think my career has been defined by an interest in understanding and designing powerful learning experiences and metacognition or reflecting on our own thinking is just a really important ingredient of active learning. So so in some sense, metacognition in some way is a part of everything that I do when I'm trying to think about how to design rich learning experiences that are also agentic, where learners like the way that you two characterized yourselves, learners are intentionally thinking about their own learning and how they can make it better.
1: I think it would be good for our listeners for you to actually define metacognition. I give a short definition earlier but if you could just let us know what you see as metacognition and um, why it matters.
0: Technically, the technical definition is thinking about thinking. It's basically a form of reflection on our own cognitive processes with an eye toward using that reflection to make are learning stronger or better? I mean, on the one hand, as I mentioned when I sort of talked about my history studying philosophy, you know, people have been interested in reflecting on knowledge and the knowledge-making process for millennia. So metacognition is a relatively new term. It's probably been around 40 or 50 years. But reflective thinking has been around for millennia. We used to think of metacognition as just thinking about thinking. But in the last 30 or 40 years, we've become much more aware of the role of emotion in learning. So now we also want to sort of think about meta-emotional learning, you know, and and SEL or social-emotional learning is an area where people have thought a lot about the regulation, the awareness and regulation of our own emotional lives. and, And the more we understand the connection between emotion and cognition, and in a sense, realize that it may even be a somewhat false or certainly problematic dichotomy, I think another thing that the concept of metacognition includes is is what you might think of as meta knowledge that is knowing. So metacognition is reflecting on our cognitive processes, but we also have plenty of knowledge about cognition and we use that to think about our cognitive processes and the more our knowledge about how people think expands, the more of a sort of a knowledge base we have to draw on for our own reflective processes. As we think about how our understanding of learning has expanded, um, we now want to include emotion. But I also think we want to include sensorial knowledge, body knowledge, embodiment. And I don't know how much work is being done right now among cognitive psychologists on sort of meta-sensorial or meta-embodied Awareness, but I certainly think that's a, an important part of metacognitive knowledge. Under, understanding how our bodies can um, be instruments of learning and how we use them as instruments of learning, certainly being reflective on, about that is an important part of metacognition and um, important part of meta knowledge.
2: What relationships might exist between metacognition and wellness?
0: That's an interesting question. I think I can point to some. Um, natural connections but i also feel a little bit cautious here because sometimes we reach for easy answers to wellness so i want to be careful but that said you know i think one piece of wellness has to do with effective agency right if we can have if we can be agents of our own destiny you know our we can if we are in control of our life path, and we are able to be agentic in terms of pursuing our goals, that's a healthy thing for people. It, it's you know, it's a healthy way forward. And I think reflective practices is a really important part of that. So if we are able, if we have the skills and the dispositions or the sort of you know, emotional set to reflect on our own thinking and be critical of ourselves so that we can direct ourselves more toward what we want, be more effectively agentic. This is going a little out on the limb, but it's connecting back to something that you said uh, you began with, Allie. Like you, I find a sort of intrinsic pleasure in reflecting positively on thinking processes and sort of becoming self-aware. There seems to be something for many people some of the time, something intrinsically pleasurable about effective self-reflection. So I think that's an important part of wellness too. I do wanna acknowledge that it can be, self-reflection can be very painful if you're in circumstances that are be, literally, you know, literally beyond your control. And um, so in a, in a funny way, the ability to be metacognitive and have it be effective is a kind of a privilege because it means we live in an environment where we can enact agency and not everybody lives in that kind of environment, and also all of us don't live there some of the time.
1: What type of processes or practices can graduate students use to build their own metacognition skills?
0: That's a a, a great question. There are a few different ways to think about this. One way to think about it is to think about um, the learning outcomes of metacognition. or their their goals. And so, you know, to the extent that the goals match our professional pursuits, there's a good synergy there. A point I'd like to make about metacognition is that there are multiple possible learning outcomes of metacognition, not just one. The one that we've been talking about so far, and I think the one that's sort of implicit in the way that we define it is that it's sort of self-regulation, so you look, think about your own processes, emotional, intellectual, sensory, and you, you, you watch them and you regulate them and you try to be aware of when you might hit pitfalls or challenges. Another outcome is to consolidate knowledge, you know, if you think, I mean, think about when you, you sort of studying something, or trying to learn about something, and you get to the end of learning sort of some sort of extras, you know, when you're trying to learning about the what, and then you say, okay, well, what have I learned? What are the three key takeaways? What are the big headlines? You know, that's a metacognitive act. And that's not so much about self-regulation, as it is about consolidation, sort of underscoring knowledge. Another kind of goal is um, to make connections between what you're learning and your larger web of knowledge or other things in the world. So just to say to yourself, okay, I just spent this time working in my neuroimaging lab. How does this connect to other things I know about or care about? Or how does this connect to other things that people might be doing and thinking? You know, you, that they can be easy connections, short little connections, or you can use the skills of metaphorical thinking to try to make really far-reaching connections. But that's also all those kinds of ways of thinking are also metacognitive. As you think about your various goals as a graduate student, as a young professional, as a leader, you might think about how metacognition can serve those different goals. But you also asked about So how do you cultivate it in yourself? And there's a million different kinds of reflective questions that you can ask, but I'll tell you two things that I think are important. One, if you want to be metacognitive and effective, the best thing to do probably, in my opinion, is to develop the habit of reflection. So even though metacognition by definition is very self-aware, very intentional, the habit of Reflecting on a learning experience, maybe before midway, and after you're in it, can become very habitual. And I think the people I know who that I think are really good thinkers are in the habit of that. And all of us have some of those habits. Like, for example, you know, you two probably have a habit around reflective feedback or something like that that you know when you are trying to give feedback, you will try to you know, give it in a certain kind of way and you'll be very thoughtful about it, but you might have a habit of giving thoughtful feedback. So I think that developing habits of reflection um, or the habit of taking time to pause and reflect is probably the single most effective thing that you can do in terms of being metacognitive. Another thing, I think, and this um, connects to your interest in leadership, I believe, is that um, you can help create a culture of brave and safe, self reflect, uh, safe reflection. So you can create an environment where you set expectations of metacognitive thinking, where it's, you know, metacognitive, being metacognitive in a public way take, is a little bit risky, right? People can say, what's wrong with you? How come you have to reflect on your thinking? Why don't you just get to it, get there, be effective, whatever. Um, often reflecting on your thinking surfaces um, weak points. and in, in some ways, that's part of the point of metacognition. So anytime we surface weaknesses in a public setting, we want to make sure that we're doing that in a safe and respectful way. So as leaders, one can create that space of safe reflection. This is so important, whether you know, you're leading a bunch of preschoolers or a bunch of graduate students or peers is modeling reflection, modeling metacognitive awareness. And so creating a culture where it's both safe to do it, but you're also seeing visibly models of what it looks like. I mean, think about how powerful it has been for all of us when we see somebody in our lives who's a leader who pauses to say, wait, I think I might have been wrong, or I made a judgment once, but now I've changed my mind. In some ways, those are metacognitive models, and they're just very important. I believe that the best leaders are learners. And so all of the reasons why metacognition is a powerful part, a powerful ingredient of active, rich, complex learning experiences are also all the reasons why leaders should adopt metacognitive practices, because um, leaders are learners. And the the more effective they can be as learners, the more effective, that's a big piece of the more effective they can be as leaders. There are other ways and other styles of leadership that don't pay so much attention to those sorts of things, but rely on charisma, may rely on a kind of a paternalistic mode where people feel taken care of without reflecting deeply on what what that means. So I think there's some very interesting puzzles around metacognition and leadership.
2: appreciate those so much. And and I wonder if you would say one aspect of this that I you haven't spoken to much yet, but that I know um, you, has been at the heart of much of your work. And I suppose I'll, I'll mention here that I have had the privilege of working with Shari at Project Zero. Um, so I know a bit about agency by design, but I wonder if it writ large, you would talk a little bit about how metacognition can support creativity and perhaps problem solving. I'm thinking of the two as how they relate together, but I'd love to hear from you a bit more about that. And especially tying back to, I think, agency and some of the things you've already introduced us to. In,
0: in one way, I mean, a very straightforward way that metacognition is related to creativity is creativity Uh, Especially creative thinking and creative problem solving. I'm not now sort of talking about the sort of creativity with a big C when we think about brilliant artistic or other scientific productions in the world. But creative thinking is about Um, often a a big important piece of creative thinking and creative problem solving is learning how to break set is learning how to see boundaries to see assumptions and to break beyond them whether you're going to call it out of the box thinking or break set thinking whatever you know an important part of creativity is seeing boundaries and then being able to step beyond them and that's metacognition is all about that i mean metacognition tells us oh this is a time where we should brainstorm lots of options and just, instead of just settling for the either or right because that's a sort of a piece of metacognitive knowledge that directly leads to creative thinking or oh here's a time when we um when we know that assumptions can come into a play that we you know and actually i wouldn't mind coming back to assumptions later but we can come back to that um, so so a lot of creative thinking skills are straightforward metacognition skills. And so in that way, I think they, they really support a problem-solving mindset. I mean, another, you know, at, while we're talking about mindsets, I mean, I think that relates to some, you know, of course, in the air, Carol Dweck's work around mindsets and fixed mindsets and growth mindsets and so forth. Um, clearly, creativity depends on having a growth mindset, feeling like you can go beyond what a fixed solution might be to a problem and so in that way i think it's a metacognition is a very important part of a creative mindset i mean think some of the the puzzles come around creative flow and inspiration and and the degree to which metacognition might um, could be sort of hyper self-awareness can be an impediment to creative flow and this is often a potential critique that's leveraged around metacognition. You know, the idea is, wait, if we become so hyper hyper conscious of ourselves and our own thinking, our sort of hyper-awareness will get in the way of creativity, we'll get in the way of action and judgment, of uh, you know, agency and so forth. One thought is that in my you know limited experience of learning and teaching and, and and knowing something about learners, especially young learners, I have really not seen that as a problem. <laughs> I mean, the problem is so much in the other direction in terms of, of especially younger learners that they aren't given an opportunity to be reflective, that worrying about sort of hyper-reflectivity in third graders is like you're worrying about the one in a million It's just not going to happen. <laughs> and maybe it might happen a little bit, but the the, the value of metacognitive skills so outweighs that particular uh, that particular pitfall, that in, in that sense, I think it's a not to worry. But there is this idea of sort of flow and being immersed in the moment. And there are forms of, of learning and, and creative production that are not um, hyper, or hyper ex- intentionally self-aware, and they are important. You know, Csikszentmihalyi talks about flow, this notion of being in the moment. Artists will sometimes talk about sort of inspiration and just having inspiration come in and sort of take you over and you sort of put your conscious mind aside. And I do think that there are aspects of learning that are not metacognitive, not self-aware, and they are really important. Um, and there's even an, another kind of learning that's not metacognitive. I mean, not only just sort of this immersive flow experience, but there's also learning to the side of attentional focus you know if you were walking down the street from here to there you're kind of there's a bunch of things you're noticing on the side that you're not really even aware of but they but they get inside you and they're important they're important to us so we don't want to say that all non-reflective learning um isn't important it is it is important that said from the perspective of cognition, if you're thinking about large arcs of learning, you know, a large arc of learning experience, a course-long experience, a a workshop-long experience, um, an extended study uh, arc of experience, overall active learning that has moments of self-reflection will be the most effective. But that arc can include immersive non-reflective moments.
1: I think that What you touched on with metacognition and learning processes that might not be metacognitively related would have an interesting follow-up if, are there other non-learning areas in which metacognition may not be relevant? So we were thinking of the social impacts of metacognition. For instance, after I have a social gathering of some sort, I often find myself the next day thinking oh how did I do what did I say um you know and some of that is maybe partially anxiety even but some of it is actually helping me understand oh how did that go self-reflection how can I be a better friend and better socializer
2: and I would add to that this aspect of metacognition and thinking about emotion and SEL learning and like like I guess there's a taken for granted assumption, so that's worth interrogating perhaps, that the more socially emotionally intelligent we are, or that we can help our young people to become, the more peacefully we might be able to cohabit. This planet, you know, and manage conflict, and so I suppose it's a very big ideal, but it really happens in anywhere from you know the the small area of a classroom or within a family unit to larger tensions perhaps between groups in society. So I suppose that as I'm now reflecting on that question, that I would I was thinking specifically about how it might tie to some of the the social emotional awareness and then some of those skills that Emma perhaps began to point to as well of how we relate to one another.
0: Emma, you were talking about the social situation and it brought to mind something that I once read about etiquette that always stayed with me, that sort of true etiquette is knowing how to make people feel really comfortable. You know, that all these silly rules that we might have around etiquette that we think, you know, the fork on this side of the plate, the knife here, you're not supposed to cough, you don't not put your elbows in the table, all that. The basic principle of etiquette are sort of, it's probably not followed very much, but is is the idea that we want structures that help people feel comfortable, and I think that's such an important part of our social interaction. So when you're reflecting on your day after and you're thinking about how was it, how was I, how you know, how did people get along, you know, that's a really important part of creating warm, comfortable, respectful and pleasurable social situations is helping people feel comfortable. And then onto the big world peace (laughs) topic that Allie brought up. I like that too. And um, I actually, it's funny. I was wondering whether any time in this conversation, there might be a natural connection to the work I've done around slow looking. And I think that is where it is. Um, I I think that it's a metacognitive act that to say, let's slow down and just describe what we see before rushing to judgment. So many, so much of of conflict writ small or writ globally large is about rushing to judgment, right? So everything that we can do to help ourselves be thoughtful and slow about rushing to judgment, I think will ultimately help us to to build a more conflict-free world. I know that sounds like a big thing. And one of the reasons I became so interested in slow looking in this act of sort of slowing down and describing what we see before we rush to interpreting it or judging it is because I think it's a mental move that across cultures, we can understand and respect. And maybe we can't all come to the same judgment, but we can all often describe what we see. And just making that move of slowing down and looking closely before moving into judgment or interpretation, I think can go a long way toward slowing down judgment.
2: I love that so much. And I'll just say very briefly in my own research, I'm thinking about um, stewarding the environment. And so I'm using your slow looking, which I mentioned in that context of how might looking slowly, spending more time really attentive to the places we're inhabiting actually begin to shift the way that we relate to the environment around us.
0: comment sparks another thought, which the, one of the things that happens when we slow down and look carefully and don't rush to judgment, especially in environmental contexts, but also in other contexts, is we begin to see complexity. We begin to see how everything is connected. I mean, and we see this now with our sort of developing understandings of, of, of ecosystem. And so leaving room to see complexity and see connections is also, I think, extremely important in understanding how we might live together in a more sensitive way to the planet, both socially as well as environmentally.
1: On that note, do you think that metacognition is able to help us understand our subconscious tendencies and a lot of people are interested in implicit biases recently, do you think that it can help with that or is it more limited to superficial cognition itself?
0: that is a great question and an a, a interesting question and uh, I have a, just a couple of thoughts you you touched on sort of unconscious biases and so forth you know earlier I mentioned that meta that successful metacognition depends on sound meta knowledge in other words you know we have we, what we know about thinking can help us be better at regulating and shaping thinking so we have learned a lot about unconscious bias in the last several years you know especially in the last couple of years and and while it's really incredibly important from a social political perspective, it's also building our body of meta-knowledge. We now know that we can bring unconscious bias to our judgments and our action, even if we're not aware of them. And as we learn more about the role of unconscious bias and, you know, you know, in our social interactions and our race and thinking about social justice and things like that, can look for unconscious bias. It's a very powerful piece of knowledge. So in that way, I think that um, metacognition very much, especially meta-knowledge, meta-knowledge can help us understand that we have subconscious or unconscious tendencies and biases and what they are, and metacognitive reflection, metacognition, can help us learn to be aware of those. So yes, the answer, I think yes, it's very important. However, I I mean, just sort of almost as a definitional matter, I don't think that metacognition itself can be unconscious. It's not an unconscious process. It's a conscious process that can help us surface unconscious um, tendencies, in and of itself, it's a conscious process. But yeah, just to complicate that a little bit more, earlier I said that one of the most powerful things we can do to help us be metacognitive is develop the habit of metacognition. So habit can sometimes be kind of unconscious. You do things habitually rather than as a matter of intentional reflection. So metacognition touches on on. Conscious activity in two ways. One, it can help us surface unconscious bias. And two, it can be triggered reflexively or habitually, but the act itself is conscious.
2: Could you just help clarify the difference between meta-knowledge and metacognition?
0: Yeah, you know, I think it's a difference that probably breaks down when you poke at it too much, but meta-knowledge has to do with what we know about thinking, right? So we've you know, just to to pull out three things from the last 30 years or more, you know, we know Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky have talked about judgment under uncertainty. Kahneman has written more books recently about thinking fast and slow, and his most recent one, Noise. The kinds of things that cognitive psychologists like Daniel Kahneman study yield metacognitive knowledge. They tell us something about the way we think and some of the pitfalls. So, Confirmation bias, knowing that people tend toward confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is tending to look for evidence that supports your theories and tending not to look for evidence that might argue against your hypotheses. Knowing that we have that tendency is a piece of metacognitive knowledge. Knowing that we have unconscious bias and it might play a role in our judgments about people and the way we perceive people is a piece of metacognitive knowledge. Metacognition um so that you could count that as meta knowledge metacognition is the act of reflecting on our own learning processes, and in in that reflection, we draw on knowledge that we have about thinking, so that would be the distinction I would draw. Thank you for asking. Thank you for inviting me to think about this and inviting me into the podcast, which really was a nice opportunity to think about these issues.
2: Thank you, Shari. This has been such a wonderful conversation and really appreciate your time, attention, and and deep thoughtfulness in this. Thanks
1: to you. Thanks for tuning in to our episode on metacognition and the role it plays in deepening learning and setting and achieving personal goals. From self-awareness and intrinsic motivation to leadership and bias We hope you've taken away some helpful insights for your own life and work.
2: If you're interested in learning more about cognition, check out Shari's book, Slow Looking, The Art and Practice of Learning Through Observation, Project Zero's website, and Shari's Thinkability podcast, which we'll link in the show notes. Next episode, we'll dive deeper into creativity and explore how interdisciplinary teams can lead to highly innovative work with Dr. Joshua Finkelstein. Executive Director of BU's Biological Design Center and a former editor of the journal Nature.